Welcome one and all to Chasing Cutoffs, bringing you the trail running news and views from the back of the pack. Welcome back to the show, friends. My name is Ben Mead, your hobbled host, and I just cannot wait to introduce you to today's guest. She is one of my personal ultra running heroes, and so we're going to get a little bit of local love on the show this week. In fact, today's guest is the very first person that I ever reached out to to say, would you consider coming on the show? I'm so excited that she said yes, and I think she is our perfect guest for episode 10. We made it. But before we jump into the interview, let's do this week's race roundup. Well, last weekend, the races were coming in thick and fast, and the Lighthouse 100 and Lighthouse 50 Mile went down in northern Michigan. This, of course, is a point-to-point road ultra that travels through some of the most scenic areas in Michigan. Merit Yansa of Fenton, Michigan, came in second on the glorious DFL podium, crushing in the 100-miler. Merritt said, it seems like not so long ago I was chasing PRs and records. Now I'm chasing cutoffs. I did have some very dark moments in my head. My feet were one big blister. And then you get all that chatter in your head like, I'm old enough to be their mother. And then another hour would pass and I would think, heck, I could be a lot of these people's grandma. But then my dad's voice always comes back into my head. And he would say, this too shall pass. The human mind is amazing. Indeed, it is, Merritt, and congratulations on crushing that 100-miler. But Merritt was not the only one to run the 100. In fact, Yara Fakuri of Dearborn, Michigan, crushed DFL in the 100-miler. About his race, he says, the goal was just to finish. This was my first ultra, and I've only recently gotten into running. Around 65 miles, I hit a wall. It had been raining for a solid six hours. The dark had kicked in and my feet were completely blistered. At that point, I had a decision to make to quit now or to give myself a break mentally and physically readjust and then get back out there. I chose the latter. And after a longer than intended break with my crew, decided to keep moving to finish the last 35. I was able to finish with four minutes to spare. Oh my word, congratulations. And an honorable mention has to go out to Chantel Palmerly of Rochester, Michigan, who crushed the 50 miler. And when results were preliminary, she was sitting on the glorious DFL podium in third. But as often happens, results get refreshed and she was bumped to fourth. But she still had a killer finish in the 50 miler at Lighthouse. Chantel wants the audience to know there will be tough days, but it is absolutely amazing what our bodies can carry us through. It's all good mentality training, great experience overall. Everyone should try it. It's an amazing feat. Indeed it is. Congrats, Chantel. Last weekend, the Yees Wonder went down. This, of course, is Go Beyond Racing's offering the 50-mile and 50K distances on Mount Hood in Parkdale, Oregon. And coming in DFL, Josh Cornegie of Portland, Oregon crushed his very first 50-miler. Josh says the race was awesome, as is everything Go Beyond does. Weather got rough during the middle section, and I really had to dig deep, making that last cutoff with only three minutes to spare. But it was amazing. Congrats, Josh. 
I also want to congratulate Michelle Cranky of Gig Harbor, Washington, who crushed DFL in the 50K. She says, this was my first ultra. I knew meeting the cutoff would be tight. It was rainy, windy, muddy, and hilly, but I stuck with it. And I'm so grateful to the supportive volunteers and staff who encouraged me and others to finish. Congrats, Michelle. Out at the Cool Moon 100 in Cool, California, Carolina Simmons of Martinez, California, crushed second on the DFL podium. She says, we can all do hard things. It's amazing what our bodies can do. The 100 is not just about physical, but such a mental race. It was an adventure of a lifetime. It was not easy. I had moments I questioned whether I could continue, but I pushed through it. It's something I will remember forever. Congrats, Carolina. The Kettle Moraine 100, dating all the way back to 1996 and put on by Ornery Mule Racing in LaGrange, Wisconsin. Sandra Weimer of Antioch, Illinois, crushed second on the glorious DFO podium. She says, this was my redemption run at Kettle. I made it to 100K last year and timed out. What a wonderful day filled with very high highs and very low lows. I could not ask for a better support system from near, far volunteers and runner friends on the trails. My crew and pacers are what got me through. Congrats, Sandra. And our last featured race this week is the Scafell Sky Race in the English Lake District in the UK. This is a crazy 40K sky race of mountain terrain with 11,500 feet of gain. And Jonathan Littlewood of the UK crushed DFL at this race. He says, I'm scared of heights. So it was a proper challenge for me to keep going. Congratulations, Jonathan. And finally, our DNFs of the week. Two incredible DNFs went down at Ring the Springs. This is Aravipa, Colorado's race in America, the beautiful park in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Eric Durrett of Colorado Springs DNF'd in the 50-miler saying it was hot and people had removed course markings from the course. I kept going till I couldn't make the cutoff, but I got in 39 miles for the day. And finally, Andrew Godinez of Colorado DNF'd in the 100-miler at Ring the Springs. He says, periodically throwing up made it difficult to fuel. I missed the cutoff at mile 35 by 15 minutes i will be back using a different strategy and having actually trained each and every one of you are incredible and thank you for letting me share your stories with the audience keep crushing it out there and now a word from our sponsor this week's episode of Chasing Cutoffs is brought to you by the new slowestknowntime.com. Why should the speedsters have all the fun? Just because you're slow doesn't mean you're not competitive. Slowestknowntime.com is the perfect place for leisurely local legends to submit their completed routes and go head-to-head against the slowest athletes on earth. Slowestknowntime.com definitively ranks every plotting effort of the world's most iconic routes. Do you have what it takes to earn the SKT? Can you defend your title of slowest trail runner on your own turf? Go to slowestknowntime.com today, submit your route, and may the slowest runner win. This being our 10th episode, I cannot think of anyone better to have on the show. Our next guest is someone who I have looked up to for years, someone whose trail running sage wisdom is something that I've really taken to heart and really appreciated. Kelly Hutchins, welcome to Chasing Cutoffs. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I am a giant fan of yours. 
On my ultra-running Mount Rushmore of heroes, you are one of the people on there. (laughs) Full disclosure for the audience at home, we met circa 2019 when I took a new job and someone was like, well, do you know Kelly? She runs ultras. I'm like, no, who is this person? (laughs) I want to introduce our audience to you. And I, of course, I want to talk about some of your adventures and I want to talk about some races, including... Uh, you know, a little race that you just attempted in the desert Attempted. <laughs> called Cocodona 250, and we will definitely get there. But before we do that, jump into the Wayback Machine with me. Okay. Where are you from? Tell me about your family and where did you grow up? So I am a Navy brat. I was born in San Diego, but lived in 13 different places before I was in high school. Whoa. We moved a lot growing up and in my early college years, I sort of continued the trend until finally in 2004, settling down in Washington, which I think will be the last place <laughs> that I live. And so in this Navy brat family, did you have brothers and sisters? I have a twin brother. Whoa, I didn't know that. Yeah. And another brother who's two years younger than me. Okay. So. Wow. Did you and your twin brother have like extra twin powers or anything? So when we were babies, we definitely spoke a baby language. You know, we would say something and laugh and then start throwing food. So our parents definitely said we had a language. Uh-huh. You know, as adults, I think our language is arguing. <laughs> no, we, we get along really well, but we're very different people. I can imagine. Yes. So with all the moving all around, did you ever feel like you really got settled into any particular community or did you just kind of create a culture for you of just, like you said, just continuing to move and continuing to be on the move? Yeah. You know, I think Navy kids get like a resilience where you move a lot. You don't generally tend to have like lifelong friends that you've known your whole life because Mm -hmm. you move every two to three years, but you do get open to a lot of different experiences and places and people and trying to go someplace new and make friends. So I appreciate that part of my childhood and try and look at that as a positive. Mm -hmm. Out of all the places you lived, was there one that kind of sticks out in a distinct way? You know, I think San Diego, because I was born there and then spent my senior year of high school there and most of college. Mm -hmm. So it feels the most like home to me. You know, Florida was a great place to live as a kid. Not sure I'd love it as an adult. We got to run a little wild and run on the beach and play in the swamps. And, you know, as a kid, I thought that was great. (laughs) Watch out for the alligators. Yeah, we used to see alligators (laughs) and snakes and, you know, do a lot of stupid kid stuff. But it was a really good childhood. Yeah. That's awesome. And was it your mom or your dad that was enlisted? My dad was in the Navy. Gotcha. And was he a pilot? Nope. He was an anesthesiologist. That's always interesting when you hear military. You don't always think of all those other jobs to do in the military outside of combat. Yep. Was he always in the medical profession? Yeah, he was in the military and the medical profession until he retired. And then he became a magistrate, which is like a judge in rural Alaska. What the heck? So my dad was a really great, (laughs) great, interesting guy for character. Interesting. Kind of like settling local disputes and things like that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Did he ever share any stories of any particular interesting disputes that came up in this small Alaskan town? 
I mean, he talked about some of the things that happened. You know, he's a pretty discreet guy because it's a small community and we mm. would go visit. And it was this little town with just a couple hundred people. So, you know, he didn't talk too much about specifics, but he did tell us some stories that were pretty interesting. <laughs> I bet. And are your parents still with us? Well, my dad died in 2019, but my mom is still around. Wow. Yeah, it actually happened a week after the Moab 240. So that was a little bit of a rough one. but. Okay, gotcha. Well, that's very recent. I'm sorry for your loss. Yes, no, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's okay. Yeah. Were you active all throughout high school, middle school? Were you doing like organized sports or just running around like a wild person in the swamps of Florida? <laughs> Yeah, I actually ran cross country and track. I started track in seventh grade and ran it all the way through my senior year of high school. And I ran cross country in high school because kind of back in the day, we had that presidential physical fitness test. Oh, we yeah. probably still have it now. Yeah. But in um, school, if you actually ran the running portion, they forced you basically to show up for cross country and track. <laughs> so, I mean, not forced, but the coach would say, you're going to come out to track next week and try out. And so, yeah. In your senior year in San Diego, did you participate in organized sports? Yeah, both track and cross country. I know that there's a wide range of the competitive field in high school track and cross country. There's folks that are just out there doing it just for the fun of it. And there's other folks that are just super driven and super focused. And, you know, they're looking at this as their ticket to school and getting into college. And where did you fall on that spectrum of competitiveness? Kind of in the middle, both in abilities and competitiveness. I am <laughs> not by nature a competitive person. If someone was trying to race me to the finish, I feel like they want it more than I do. And I let them have it. But yeah, I enjoyed cross country and track. I enjoyed the friends I made there. I was okay, a solid, you know, middle of the pack runner yeah. in cross country, but I knew that I would never do it in college mm. and I was never driven. I just liked it and had fun. You went to San Diego State. Yes. And what did you study there? Well, I studied a lot of things, um, but I ended up studying geography, got a degree in geography. Yeah. So this is very interesting to me because the, the spot where you work and where I worked for a time is very geography heavy. And I'm really curious, how do you come to that discipline? Why did you gravitate toward geography in school? Yeah, actually, it's a really weird one. I was a botany major hmm. and I was a rock climber at the time and was at a local rock climbing area. And I was thinking about changing my major because I wasn't sure that botany was the thing that I wanted to do. And I met this guy and he was talking about geography and GIS and how it was like a really cool field. And I went back to school the next week and I took a few classes and then I changed my major. Oh, wow. Did not see that guy again for two years at the climbing field till after I graduated. And then I was out there one day and said, hey, I ended up getting a degree in geography and now I'm looking for a job. Do you know anybody? <laughs> <laughs> that actually, we're hiring at the city of San Diego. So then I got my first job. Out of school. Yeah. Oh, man, that's really, really cool. Going back to this idea of college, so you didn't run in college for the school. I did not run in college for the school. No, I, I ran on my own haphazardly, you know, <laughs> a couple miles a week and definitely did a lot of hiking in the San Diego foothills at the time. Mm. Did some intramural sports, but I kind of suck at anything that requires hand-eye coordination. Oh, uh, okay. So, and when did you start climbing? I started climbing in college, just, you know, hanging out with people who are climbers and going out to the bouldering areas with them. That's cool. And did that stick or was that just kind of a college thing? 
It stuck for about 10 years, probably maybe 12 years. And then I just sort of, I don't know, got busy. I was working at, you know, the job I have now at the time and I just sort of fell away from it. About the same time, actually, I went back to running more consistently. Did you do quite a bit of moving after college? Yeah, I I moved to Connecticut for a little while. And then I moved to Southern California to take the job that I have now. Mm -hmm. And Southern California, when I moved back there is when I started running again. I joined a marathon training group Ah. and trained for the LA Marathon in 2005. And that was my first marathon. I would say a few years before that, I had been doing half marathons and things Mm -hmm. like that. But 2005 was when I really picked up running seriously. Yeah, yeah. Training for a marathon, that's very serious. So you caught the bug at that point and you had been hiking, you had been climbing, you were running on the roads. At what point do you discover trail running as a thing? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, cross country, we ran a lot on trails, right, Mm -hmm. in high school. And I've always been a hiker and I backpacked for years in there. All my running was on the road. I never put two and two together until I moved to this tiny little town on the Arizona Utah border. Okay. There were not many roads to run on. It was basically on the side of a two-lane highway or I could explore the dirt roads and cow paths around town. Mm. So that's when I started taking my dogs and running on these dirt roads and cow paths and trails. And it's actually the first time I ever heard of ultra running too because there was a guy who used to run out there who was an ultra runner. And at the time I thought, whoa, that's crazy. (laughs) Did you just bump into him randomly out there? I ran into him at a coffee shop. I mean, it's a small enough town that there's like people who run know who else runs. Uh There's only like three people. Yeah. (laughs) Where, what is this town? (laughs) So it's a town called Fredonia and it's on the Arizona strip. So legit three miles from the Utah border. And what took you out there? There is an animal sanctuary on the Utah side of the border that my husband worked for. You discovered trail running very organically because it's just what's there. If you don't want to run on the highway, you're going to run off road. You've already been doing cross country previously, so it's not totally foreign. What did you think in terms of the mix of the terrain that was in this Arizona, Utah versus like San Diego? Was it pretty similar? I mean, it's really different terrain, right? San Diego is more like the chaparral and where we lived in utah was kind of high desert okay and there weren't any specific trails where we were it was mostly just like these dirt roads right i would get tired of the logging road and just jump on the cattle paths and follow them (laughs) yeah and i actually really enjoyed the process of i'm gonna take this cow path and see where it goes and figure out a way to wind myself back onto a dirt road to get home exploration navigation that's cool Yeah, what's around the next corner is always big. (laughs) So you mentioned your husband. Where did you meet? We met at the company I work for now. When you were in SoCal? Yes. And then he took a job in a tiny town to manage a shelter? It's a large shelter called Best Friends Animal Sanctuary in Utah. And he worked on the IT department there. Oh. So you meet this one of three runners in the entire town, and he is talking about ultra running. How did he introduce you to it? You know, it was just a quick conversation at a coffee shop. And then shortly thereafter, he moved and I never talked to him again. (laughs) He was just talking about a hundred mile race that he had run. And it was in Utah. I think it was a mountainous one near Salt Lake. Yeah. And, you know, I just remember thinking, wow, a hundred miles, that's pretty interesting. And it just kind of lodged in the back of my brain that people do this. Yeah. And at that point, 26.2 was the furthest you'd ever gone. Yeah. 
How do you discover more about it? If it piqued your interest, at what point do you cross the line of, oh, that's interesting, to I want to learn more? Yeah, I think the second time I ever heard of ultra running was when a friend of mine, I was still living on the Arizona border, and she was coming to do the Grand Canyon Rim to Rim to Rim. And she's a hiker, not a runner. Uh I said, oh, cool. I will drive over and go halfway. I'll do from south to north, and then I'll get my husband to pick me up, and you guys can go back. Because I haven't trained for Rim to Rim to Rim. Right. So I met her, and we hiked across. And then I got to the North Rim, and I was like, this is kind of fun. I don't really want to go home. So I got a hold of my husband, I can't remember how, and said, never mind, I'm just going to walk back across. And during that trip, one of the other people on the trip had just finished Angeles Crest Mm -hmm, 100 mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. So I had a million questions for him. And a lot of time to ask them. Yes. And that was sort of my second introduction to, okay, people do these things. And, you know, I just walked for 22 hours across the Grand Canyon and back. Almost 50 miles. Yep. So that was kind of the second thing, like, hmm, this is more interesting. Yeah. And then it just went on the back burner because I didn't know any other actual friends or acquaintances mm-hmm. who did it. So it didn't still really feel like a thing I could do. Mm-hmm. So that was your second introduction. Yes. And then we moved to Olympia. Okay. And of course, we have a big group of trail runners here. We have Oli Trail Runners, which is our local trail running group. And so you come to the Pacific Northwest, radically different than Southern California, radically different than, you know, the Utah-Arizona border. And you've already had a couple of introductions. Your interest has peaked. And then what happens when you get here? So when I get here, there are a few running groups in town. I trained for and ran my second marathon, the Portland Marathon. Oh, nice. And then I ran a 12-hour race around Capitol Lake and ran my first attempt at 50 miles. It's really interesting to me that there's a 12-hour race around Capitol Lake. This is in 2010, which I think they called the Transcendence Ultra Yeah. Whose race was that? That was Gorilla Running, Rachel and Craig. Ah, okay. Capital Lake for the uninitiated is sort of a iconic feature of our town, feeding into the Puget Sound. It's about a one and a half mile loop to go around. It's just a flat gravel path. Do you remember how far you got in that first 12 hour attempt? I think it was 95 degrees that day. I remember it being hot. Yeah, this is mid-August. Yeah, and I got 48 miles, I think. Wow. So very similar to what you did in the Grand Canyon, actually. Yep, but in a lot less time. Yes, (laughs) a lot less elevation gain running around a lake. That's really cool. And so then you jumped into, you said, a 50-miler. Where was that? After Transcendence, a few people who run the race were talking about Javelina 100 in Arizona. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I think I can do it now that I've met these other people. So I signed up for Javelina 100, having only ever run that 12 hour. Yeah. And then I said, oh, crap, I better figure out how to train for this. And that's when I signed up for Mount Hood 50 miler. Mm-hmm. And I did that. And then my first couple of 50Ks I did training for Havelina. And then you went out to Havelina in uh, Fountain Hills, Arizona? Yep. November 2011. And of course, this is famously a, you know, five loop, 20 mile course that is sort of a good intro to 100 mile races. How did that experience go for you? Actually, it was a really great experience for me. And I'm lucky because I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) I didn't know about trail shoes, really. I hadn't logged that many miles on trail. I wore road shoes. 
I had like a really cheap headlamp, but I also had this hat that I found at Home Depot that had LED lights in the brim <laughs> that I thought would work great for the night. Um, yeah. Didn't know anything about hydration or nutrition. It can be hot in Havelina. I lucked out that that was the year that it rained at night. Mm. So for someone from the Northwest, that was perfect. I actually had a really good race. I mean, clearly there were small parts where I'm like, oh, this is, you know, hard. Yeah. But I just, I just don't remember having any struggles and it just really went really well for a first 100. In all of the pictures and video I've seen of Havelina, you know, they have that big tent city where you can come in and your crew's there and you get resupplied and you go back out again. Did you have friends and family there, crew, to help you through that process? No, I didn't have crew. There were a couple of other people from the area that were running their own race. Mm -hmm. So I basically just did it on my own. Wow. I mean, I saw friendly faces out on the loop, right? Yeah. But I definitely did not have anyone crewing me. Well, Havelina Flex, you just got it done. You know, it's a great one to not have crew because you also learn that the aid station volunteers are fantastic and Mm. they want to help you. And honestly, I don't really think you need crew. It's great if you have it, but the aid station people will take care of you. That's awesome. One thing I love that you said, like, I didn't know what I was doing. I just went out there in road shoes. I got this hat at Home Depot with (laughs) LEDs in it. How did the LEDs work out in the night? You know, the thing is, it's the desert, so you're lucky. And Havelina is always famously at full moon, right? Mm. So there's enough ambient light that my janky little Home Depot headlamp hat worked just fine. (laughs) Yeah, I love that because you don't have to invest triathlon-level amounts of money to go and do an ultra, right? You can just kind of piece it together. And you learn a lot over time. I'm assuming you learned a few lessons out there. I did. I think my favorite lesson that I learned is I happened to be running with this other person. I don't even know who they were, but we came up this hill and we're looking down to an aid station. It was pouring down rain. There was a fire pit with a bunch of chairs and people with blankets around it. And he said to me, oh, that's the aid station of doom. Think about what you want now. Get in and get out of there and don't go anywhere near that fire. So I think that was super helpful. I I think if I had maybe sat down in the chair, warmed up by the fire, it might have been hard to get going again. Right. So I try and keep his words in my head every time an aid station looks too comfortable and inviting that maybe I need to start thinking about what I want and how to get out of there. Yeah. The aid station of doom alert goes off. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I love that. So after that race, you just keep on going all kinds of races, a lot of them in Washington state. I know you had mentioned to me that you went back to do the adventure of rim to rim to rim, but you did it as a run. When did you do that? No, I think we did it in, 2014. It ended up being more walking than running. It (laughs) took us about the same time. It took me years and years ago. Okay. But I went with a group of people, some of whom it was also their first attempt at ultra distance. Oh, nice. One of them was my now good friend, Jody, who I just met at the time and it was her first time doing an ultra. So it was a really fun experience. Shout out to Jody Halverson. I think she'll come up a little bit later in the conversation. She's great. (laughs) I remember you told me a story about that day, and I believe that there was an issue with quality of the water on course, because I know (laughs) that that's a big part of the logistics. You want to go when it's not super hot, but you also want to go when the water's on, because the water's not always on in the canyon. What was the issue with the water that day? 
both times I've done it, I've done it in uh, October-ish, November, mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. before the North Rim closes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we got halfway up the North Rim. There's kind of this last water spout where you can fill water. And we filled up with it, drank it all the way up to the North Rim, came all the way back down. And then there was a sign on the post that said, don't use this water. It's been tested and contaminated with E. coli. Oh so God. then we were all like, you know... <laughs> super grossed out. So the sign wasn't there when you got your water, but it was there when you got back. Exactly. So we were super grossed out. I think we dumped out our bladders and filtered at a stream closer to Phantom Ranch, threw away our bladders when we got back up to the South Rim at the hotel. We're like, I'm never drinking out of that again. And then we found out the next day that it was a false alarm. (laughs) And nobody got sick. Nobody got sick. It took you just about the same amount of time as the first time because there were some newbies with you, which I think is awesome. I love that you weren't out there trying to like set a PR or anything, right? You were really genuinely trying to have an adventure. Yeah. I think in my case, the races are almost training for the adventures. Yeah. I think my true love is the adventure runs. Thinking up a crazy idea and talking friends into joining you is my favorite. Yeah. And do you like planning the logistics of those things? A terrible planner. You know, I would say Jody and I have a ton of stories about how we've gone out and done stuff and made it only because we're lucky. Uh huh. But I love coming up with the ideas and doing it. Yeah. We don't always do the planning, but we've always made it back so far. <laughs> what was your most memorable adventure where things didn't quite go right? Oh, wow. So there could be the time we decided to do the Wonderland Trail. And for the uninitiated, the Wonderland Trail, very famous, circumnavigates Mount Rainier and Mount Rainier National Park, about 93 miles. Yeah. In one push with day packs, maybe 500 calories of food each. We did have a resupply, bought at one point, shorts, no puffy coat. We had a windbreaker and a space blanket. We made it, but... (laughs) You know, if I did it now, I would have a fast pack with a stove and yeah, bivy and a puffy coat. Yeah, it was fun. As you are continuing to do all these adventures, you're also doing a ton of races. And it really wasn't until 2015 you went to do Trans Rockies. And that's like a six-day stage run kind of stage thing. race. Yeah. And that was your first one? It was my first and only <laughs> at this point. <laughs> what was that experience like? A friend Jenny and Jody and I flew out to Colorado to do it. We were nervous about the idea of running that many miles in a week. It's a big training volume for us. It turned out to be really, really great. They're a great organization. It's a lot of fun every day. They have tents set up for you at night. They have huge amounts of good food. So you just get back to camp, stuff your face. It's like a buffet, basically. Yes, exactly. Pay for a massage if you want one. And then go sleep in your tent and repeat. And is your tent set up for you when you arrive? Yes. You just have to pick up this giant duffel bag and haul it to your tent. And then you just crash out for the night and wake up the next morning and eat breakfast and go for a run. Do it all over again. (laughs) Yeah, it was really great. That sounds awesome. I think that's one thing that we haven't quite mentioned yet is that you are a career back of the packer, which is why you are my ultra running hero. (laughs) (laughs) And you then went on just the very next month after finishing Trans Rockies, you went and did Mountain Lakes 100, which very different course, very different weather. This is in Oregon. Totally different experience, I would assume, from Havelina. Yes, it's, you know, a little more mountainous. It's not a super hilly course, but there's enough challenges. A big chunk of it's on the Pacific Crest Trail. So it's nice, smooth trail with beautiful views of some of the Cascade volcanoes like Mount Hood. 
another 100 that I really had a great time with. And other than being a little tired at night, also did not struggle too much with. So at this point, you know, running is still going okay. And I'm having fun at these hundreds. And was there any stage where things were not okay when you went out to go for a race? No, I mean, I think I always struggle with a 50 mile distance for some reason. It's a challenge for me. My fastest 50 mile times are in a hundred mile. The 50 mile distance itself, I, I have a really difficult time with. And I would say I have a difficult time with the Badger 50 miler in Eastern Washington in particular. Which you've done a few times. Which I've done, yeah, a couple times. It's hot over there and heat is not my buddy. One of the things that you told me as my ultra running sage that also helped reframe the way that I think about running and kind of encouraged me to keep going was I was telling you, oh, I've done a couple 50Ks or I just did a 50K and I came in DFL. And and you shared that with me that, you know, when I run those shorter distances, I'm always chasing cutoffs. But when I go beyond that, when I get into the 100, it's an easier time. It's more relaxed. You're not constantly chasing cutoffs. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's probably for me just a mental thing, because if I think about the hundreds I've done, I've never had to worry about a cutoff, never been anywhere near the sweepers. I think it's just more relaxed pace. You don't really need to worry about anything until mile 70. And then it's like, okay, well, I've just got 30 miles to go. So if I had to guess, I think for me, it's just a mental thing as I just keep it under control Mm. better in a hundred miler, because I know that, you know, I have 30 hours to go out and do this thing and it feels reasonable. Mm Yeah, that's really interesting because I've only attempted 50 miles and didn't finish it. Spoiler alert. (laughs) But it's got me thinking like, you know, why don't I just jump into a 200 mile race at this point? So many people do just skip it all and go straight to 200. You're the first person I ever met that ran a 200 mile race. I didn't even know 200 milers existed until I met you. I remember circa 2019, you and I start working together. You were training for the Moab 240. And I thought, what? (laughs) First of all, how did you hear about Moab and why did you decide to do that? Yes. Olympia, as you mentioned earlier, we're really lucky. We have a great trail running scene. There's lots of ultra runners here. And a lot of people I know ran Bigfoot 200. I volunteered there two years in a row, had a great time, was really inspired by those runners. I thought about doing Bigfoot, but I have run lots of miles on that course and I couldn't face doing the Lewitt Trail again, which is kind of like the first part of Bigfoot. It's hot, it's exposed, it's beautiful, but I've done it, I think, three times or so now. And the Lewitt Trail, actually not too unlike the Wonderland, this is the circumnavigation of Mount St. Helens, correct? Yes. And through a lot of exposed lava rock, really sharp. Much more rugged. The Wonderland has a lot of ups and downs, but a lot more tree cover and landscape were because of the blast zone at Mount St. Helens. The Lewitt is much more rugged and exposed. So you knew you didn't want to do your 200 mile race on that course. Yes. And, you know, then I thought about Tahoe, but Tahoe has a lottery and I just wanted the instant gratification of signing up. (laughs) Just getting in there. So I went ahead and signed up for Moab the day it opened for registration that year and um, had the immediate like, oh crap, what did I do moment. (laughs) (laughs) 
and then just started training for it. What did you put together in terms of training? Did you focus more on adventure runs and trying to have fun? Or were you really like, I need to do races to get ready for this? Yeah. So I definitely focus more on adventure runs and trying to have fun. Another thing that we're lucky here in the Northwest is there's the ultra pedestrian site. It's a local runner who puts together like these adventure routes and you can, you can sign up for them and run them. And I think they have an award show that I've never been to at the end of the year that seems like a lot of fun. But they're basically just iconic routes like the Wonderland Trail and the Lewitt around Mount St. Helens. But then there's also these other routes, like there's a 60 miler on the Olympic Peninsula. Mm. It's a blast. And none of these are organized. You just sign up for it and go out and do it on your own. So self-supported. So that was a time when I was really into those. And I did a lot of those routes to train for it rather than organized races. Gotcha. Is it kind of like a fastest known time type scenario where you upload your results and say, I did this. And so then they track who completed everything. Yes, exactly. That same kind of thing. But there's some great routes. So if anybody comes to the Northwest and is looking for an adventure route to do, I would check out that website and, and see the routes that are available. And so you knocked out a couple of those. You also did some races. You went back to Badger Mountain in eastern Washington and did the 100 miler there. That March, you did Lumberjack 100. And yeah, I think I did the 50 in that one. Oh, you did the 50 miler there. Yeah. Glutton for punishment, back to the 50 mile distance. Yeah, got to get it in. So let's talk about Moab because this is like at least a week long and you're going to have crew, you're going to have pacers. How do you put all those logistics together? You don't. <laughs> I'm Lucy Goosey. I talked to my friend Jody, who's always up for any adventure. I said, hey, I'm going to run this. Do you want to pace me? So then we looked up when you could have your first pacer and I think it was at mile 70. And she's like, I'll jump in at mile 70 and pace you to the end. Whoa. I think she paced 135 miles of the race with me. Wow. Yeah. But we did not have any crew other than that. We just relied, again, on the aid stations. And I can't give a big enough shout out to people who volunteer. They're fantastic. Runners should not be afraid of doing one of these races because they don't have people to crew for them. Mm, that's good to hear. I mean, everything from refilling your bottle, but they'll also do like foot care and things. They'll also do foot care. They'll get you food. They'll give you pep talks. They want to see you succeed. No aid station person wants you to drop out at their aid station. They want to get you out of there and get you to the next one. You know, I think often we see YouTube videos that people will do of their adventure and they've got a crew of five, right? Yeah. And they've got multiple pacers. And what I'm hearing you say is that's not entirely necessary. You can really rely on the aid stations. Exactly. And other runners that you meet out there, if you don't have a pacer, then you can find people that are going the same beat as you, at least for a little while and sort of rely on each other. Yeah. Well, on the topic of speed, <laughs> <laughs> I think that this is maybe your most epic DFL finish. You were dead last in the 2019 Moab 240. Yes, my only to date DFL. Um, but yeah. Oh man, let me be the, I don't know, first, last, I'm not sure, to say congratulations. That is amazing. Yeah, I was very happy to finish. <laughs> I remember you telling me shortly after that you did a lot of walking, which you know, I would assume any kind of 200 plus mile race is going to be mostly walking if you're at the back of the pack. Yes, I would say there's plenty of people who finish it, mostly power hiking mm -hmm. with some slow jogging when conditions are right. Yep. Any interesting hallucinations along the way in Moab? Yeah, so Moab, I was doing fine. I was not back of the pack. I was towards the back of the pack, but not last till I got to this aid station called Pole Canyon right before we climb up into the LaSalle Mountains. And I had planned to sleep there, but I just got one of those, I'm not tired. Let's keep going. 
sort of instantly after we left that aid station, I realized that was a mistake because I had it in my head that I physically could not do more than take one step, stop and take three breaths, take one step, stop and take three breaths. And that was kind of the start of a really long night. I think it was the start of me just being out of it. And I just thought that if I tried to go any faster than that, I wasn't going to make it. I was going to have to fall over and I don't know what, stop moving. But then as we continued, we got to this sort of place where the trail looked the same kind of Blair Witch Project. There were these aspen trees where people had carved in the trunk of the trees. And it sort of looked like we were going in circles. So my poor pacer, Jody, who had already been out there with me continuously for 100 miles at that point, I kept saying, Jody, you're leading me in circles. Why are we doing this? We don't have to do this. And then I told her this big story about how my dad was friends with the race director. He isn't. And he said that we don't have to do this. And that Candace gave me an envelope at the start of the race, each runner, and the envelope had a color-coded marker on it. And depending on the color coding you had, we either did or did not have to do this section. And we had the color coding that we did not have to do this section. Whoa, this is really detailed. Yes. And I have no idea where it came from. And then I think I told her that I called my dad and that my dad called search and rescue and they were going to come out and find us. And this is when Jody started to get worried because I had a Delorme. So she was like, oh no, is she like messaging people? Are they going to come out and get us? Right. So she was just really patient and just slowly we made it through. But that's when we went from being, you know, maybe 10, 15 back to actual last. Right. With 15 minutes to spare to get into the aid station before we finished our last 30 miles. So we got in there, they put me to sleep for 15 minutes and then kicked us out. And and then I was fine after that, mm. but the damage had been done. <laughs> Your fate was sealed. Yes. That's incredible. And it was, like you said, just shortly after that your dad passed away. Yep. I think I was back home for two or three days when my brother called me and said he had a heart attack. So, you know, I'm not at all a spiritual person, but I sort of still feel like that was my last some sort of communication with my with my dad that clearly I had been thinking of him and had some connection with him out there. Yeah, that's powerful. That's really interesting. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so one two hundred was not enough for you. Even though I said it was going to be enough for me. And then we all say that. I remember when you said you were never going to do that again. <laughs> so when you told me you'd signed up for Cocodona, I think I called you out on that But, you know, you did do a few races in between and you actually had a couple of notable DNFs, which is not a regular thing for you. You typically finish your races, but you did go out to do Rocky Raccoon, which is really famous 100 miles out in Huntsville, Texas. And you DNF there. That was just the February after Moab. Yeah, I think physically I was recovered from Moab. I think mentally I was not Mm. ready to stay up all night. So, you know, it got dark. It got late. I wanted to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. I'm typically not a person who regrets DNFs. I just don't. I think we learn things from DNFs. And I think that our next race finishes are sweeter because we had those DNFs, right? I regret that one only because of what happened after. If I'd known it was going to be the last race for two years. Uh... But it's okay. I enjoyed sleeping in the car while everybody else ran. Yes. It would have been a little bit sweeter to be able to finish that. Had you known, right? Had any of us known. Think of all the things we would have done. (laughs) (laughs) How did the whole pandemic affect you and your running and racing? Was it a big impact on you? Yeah. You know, I, I feel pretty lucky. I have a job where I could work from home. 
running we're lucky with that as a hobby right because other than the very beginning right here in washington it was like everything was closed even our parks yes I, you know i did some more road running but pretty soon things started opening back up for running outside you know a, a friend of mine angela has these backyard races so we had those backyard 12 hour events so it was kind of like a DIY thing for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But I think compared to other people, we're lucky that we have a community and some great trails. and Great community, great organizations putting together virtual runs and backyard runs. And yeah, absolutely. Where did the idea for Coca Dona 250 2022 come from? Who came up with this? You know, a couple of us were talking about it. Angela, I know, was one of them, and Phyllis, my friend who just finished it. Shout out Phyllis Stanley. Yeah, she did great. Yeah. You know, I had seen the video that they put out and it looked amazing. And I wanted to give it a try. So I don't know. It was just always in the back of my mind, I think, post Moab, that I, I would try that one next. And your friend Jody went too. Yep. And Phyllis also. There were three of us from Olympia that went out and ran it this year. Uh, One of us finished. Phyllis, good job. If you haven't seen it, go back and watch. I think it was the second to the last live stream, which you can find on YouTube. And you can see Phyllis's finish where she is surrounded by lots of friends and family. It's really special. It is really, it's really nice. And she struggled with it the year before. So I think it was really nice for her to come back and redemption. Yes. Not just redemption, but like she smashed it, you know, I mean, she finished a great time. Oh yeah. I'm really happy for her that she finished that race in such great style. All the pictures you see of her too along the course, she's got a smile on her face from beginning to end. It's just very inspiring. Yes, yes. Tell me about your Cocodona experience. I know that the course was rerouted in a pretty dramatic way. From a vert perspective, it was a plus in the sense that I think it was like 10,000 feet less of vert this year than it was in the first year because of the reroute due to the fires. But was it smoky at the start line? Thankfully, it was not smoky. We didn't have much smoke. So I think we really lucked out considering they had those terrible fires there, right? No, we had great skies. Weather was a little warm, but not too bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was pretty nice start. I think the new reroute went up to elevation a little bit faster, which caused issues for some runners, myself included. Um, Mm. But So at what point do you start feeling the elevation and the altitude? (laughs) So I struggled earlier with this race than I've ever struggled in a race before in my life. I think I was with the sweeper. So at the very back of the pack by maybe mile, somewhere between 11 and 17. So really early in the race, I felt really weak. I was hot and I was vomiting. So I had dry heaves in front of the sweeper, which is not my favorite moment of the race. (laughs) And I think basically until the sun started to go down and we hit this downhill road, I struggled. Wow. So my first day didn't start out so great. And do you feel like that was an altitude related? Yeah, I talked to the medics and he said he thought people were struggling with the combination of heat and altitude. Because mm-hmm. I think we went up to 6,800 that first day. Yeah. And for those who are not aware, us folks in Olympia, Washington, were basically at sea level. level. Yes. So you struggled really early on, but you kept on pressing. I mean, I was following your tracker the entire time that you were out there. When did things turn around a little bit where you started to feel a little bit more comfortable? Yeah, so I felt better once the sun went down. It kind of coincided with a part of the race where we go downhill for about 10 miles. So we went down in elevation and the temperature went down. So I was able to shuffle my way down the hill and make up some time and get away from the sweeper and, you know, get a little a little buffer on the cutoffs. And, you know, I wasn't yeah. so worried at that point. So I felt pretty good. And at some point you caught up to Jody. 
Yeah. So we were about four miles apart for maybe like a day. And then at some point she just waited for me Uh and we decided to run it in. So she took a little bit of a longer rest and then we ran together for the last couple of sections that we did. How far did you make it? I made it to mile 171. And was that a specific aid station where you pulled the plug? Yeah. So we actually pulled a plug between aid stations. There was a cutoff between 171 and 187, I think, which was about five hours for 15 miles, which sounds fine until you realize it's three miles an hour, which also sounds fine until you realize (laughs) that you've been doing two point, you know, something miles per hour for the last day. Yeah. So we thought we could make it. But what we were worried about is that the aid station cut off there, I think was at six. I was worried Mm -hmm. I would get to that aid station at six, have to head straight back out back of the pack no rest with the sweeper and immediately have to lie down take a trail nap yeah with the sweeper standing there watching us going come on guys Um, and i kind of couldn't get that image out of my head so we just started talking about how is this math going to work can we do it we both had pretty bad blisters Mm. and we hadn't slept since the night before we were just worried we didn't have time to take care of ourselves and continue right that makes sense yeah and neither one of us regrets it at all really No, no regrets. You had an amazing adventure out there. We had a great time. Yeah. Stories we'll have, you know, forever that we can laugh about. Well, congrats on 173 miles or so. (laughs) That's insane amount of distance. Um, Yeah. The trail math that you're doing there is we might get to this aid station. We might be able to beat the cutoff, but I need to sleep. I need to recover before I head out again. And there's not time to do that. Right. We weren't sure we'd have time to do that. And the sweepers are great, right? But I did not want to spend 80 miles chasing cutoffs with the sweepers. That's a lot. Yeah. And people do it. And I'm super proud of them. But I just wasn't in the mood for it at that particular point in time. (laughs) Understood. Being the uh, glutton for punishment slash adventure that you are, You are already signed up for another race this year. And not only another race, a very unique, interesting race. If for anyone out there who has not heard of the Plain 100 in central Washington, what's really unique about it, and I quote from their website, the first eight years of the Plain 100, there were only four finishers. In time, folks figured out how to manage themselves on the course and approximately 50% now finish. Why is this race so hard to finish? Because there is no aid and no course marking. A navigation route. I think it's mostly dirt road with some single track, but yeah, it's not marked with ribbons. You're going to have to find your way out there and you're filtering your water and carrying what you need. I think there might be some sort of aid at the 100K mark. Yeah. From what I've read, you know, you're going to be doing two loops. You're doing the 100 miler. And when you come in to start your second loop, you're going to have the opportunity to completely switch out your gear if that's what you want to do. But whatever you carry out with you, you have to carry the whole time. And you can't have any pacer and you can't have anybody muling for you or carrying anything for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I think it should be a fun challenge. So when you're not racing, running, adventuring, et cetera, what is it that you are most passionate about? Yeah, I would have to say animal rescue dogs. Yeah. In particular, I have five of my own dogs. We generally always have a foster dog. And is your husband still working in that field? Is he still working for rescues? No, he's a full-time dog dad. That's awesome. Yeah, he takes care of the dogs, feeds them, walks them, 
medicate them. So I've rescued a dog, as they say. Um, but what does it mean to foster? Like, there's a whole world behind that thing that I don't fully get. Yeah, often shelters are overwhelmed, right? They get a lot of dogs in. Some of the dogs are easy to adopt back out. They can go back to a new home right away. Other dogs do not do well in the shelter system. They're shy, they're scared, they're older. They just have attributes that make it a little harder for them to get adopted. So foster homes are a great place. They get to come into actual family. They get to live in a home. They get to get trained and lose weight and, you know, maybe get a little bit more confidence. Mm. And then we can work hard to find the right fit for them. That's really cool. And that's a very generous thing to do with your time and your love. Is there a particular organization or organizations that you are passionate about that you work with to you know, facilitate both the fostering and the eventual adoption process? Yeah, we foster mostly for a great one called My Way Home Dog Rescue out of Portland, Oregon. We also walk dogs every Sunday for a local shelter here near the Olympia area called Adopt-A-Pet. And both of them are fantastic organizations. All right, and the awesome. third one, if anyone's looking for an active herding breed, there's a rescue called Herd You Needed a Home in Bend, Oregon. that gets lots of border collies and Aussies, which make great running buddies. Yes. And you have been running with dogs for years. For years. Yes. I love my running dogs. It's the best. That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that because I didn't fully understand the process. But let's move into fast twitch, slow twitch. It's the chasing cutoffs, lightning round. <laughs> Would you rather come in first in a 50K or DFL in a 200 miler? Wow, that's actually a tough one because you usually ask 5K. No brainer, right? Exactly. I'm making it hard on you. Yeah, but like one of my goals in life would be to get a little faster. Uh-huh. But I think I'm still going to have to go with the DFL in a 250 miler. Okay, we'll make it 250 miles. <laughs> <laughs> Dogs or cats? Oh, well, you know what? Actually... <laughs> Both. I mean, I'm a dog person. I adore my dogs, but I also have a cat. I'm going to say dogs, but with a cat. Dogs, but with a cat asterisk. <laughs> yeah. Throw a cat into the mix because they're great too. Right? Sweet or salty? Sweet. I have a terrible sweet tooth. I eat way too much junk. What is your go-to like craving junk when you're out on the trail? It's like terrible food, like Sour Patch Kids, sweet tarts, just like pure disgusting sugar. <laughs> what is your trailhead access vehicle? What are you driving? Toyota Tacoma. It's so cliche. <laughs> oh yeah. You already answered this question, which is outside of running, are you a competitive person? I am 100% not a competitive person. Anytime someone tries to run, sprint to the finish line with me, I, I'm, I'm out. I just check out. <laughs> Garmin, Koros, Sunto, or other? Koros. I love it. When you are out there on a long, hard race, are you able to do trail math? Yes. I think I'm okay at trail math. As long as you're not hallucinating. Yes, as long as I'm not hallucinating, I'm okay at trail map. What is your worst injury ever? Ugh, I have a terrible ankle. I sprain it once a month at least. Oh. So I sprain my left ankle and my right knee is what hits the ground. And it looks like it's been bashed 8,000 times. So I frequently come home for the trail limping with blood running down my leg. And my husband just goes, again, again, <laughs> yeah. What is your toughest finish 
ever? Wow, I mean, I guess I'd have to say Moab, even though the finish itself was really great. I was running with the sweepers and a friend of mine was pacing at that point, Amy, and the end felt okay. But yeah, I'd have to say overall, that was my toughest. If you're out there by yourself and you're not with a friend and you're trying to motivate yourself to keep going, do you have any kind of self-talk or mantra that you say to yourself? Yeah, I think my favorite mantra is things don't always get worse. So no matter how terrible I feel, I just remind myself that, you know, a mile from now you could actually be running. Yeah, I like that. You've done a lot of races, you've done a lot of adventures, but do you still have this sort of bucket list dream destination or adventure? Yes, but I'm actually going on it in September. I'm taking a trail running sailboat trip to Greenland that's been postponed for the last two years. And it looks like it's actually going to happen. Wow, that sounds epic. I went to Iceland three years ago and it was amazing. So I'm very excited to be going to Greenland. That is awesome. What's your most memorable animal encounter? (laughs) Uh, Nothing super exciting. I got sprayed in the face by a skunk once. Oh, I think that's probably my most memorable. That's definitely (laughs) memorable. What is easier for you to manage on race day? Is it I just sprained my ankle and busted my knee in a fall or GI distress? It's the sprained ankle. I've just done it so many times. I kind of know what to do at this point. Yeah. You've been doing this a while. You've seen a lot of growth and change in the trail running and ultra running races and the culture and There seems to be a big explosion of recent times with people like the Spartan races getting into ultra running and the Ironman group taking over UTMB and all those races getting consolidated and all these companies merging and acquiring. And there seems to be a lot happening. I'm curious your thoughts on how that's going to impact the back of the pack. Yeah, you know, I mean, I have concerns that cutoffs are going to get shorter and, you know, the back of the pack may not be seen as an important component of the race. But I console myself with the fact that there are always some old school ultras out there that hopefully will stay that way. Yes, a little bit more grassroots. Yeah, if that's not the case, there's always DIY adventure runs, right? Yeah. I'd encourage any back of the pack people to try and plan something that's a lot of fun. Grand Canyon Rim to Rim to Rim is a fantastic one. Awesome. Well, I am so grateful if the listeners at home want to continue to follow your amazing adventures how can they find you i think on instagram it's kelly hutchins kelly hutchins on instagram to follow along in the adventures well this has been amazing thank you thank you so much i love the idea of this podcast and i'm so glad that you're doing it Well, that, my friends, is another show. 10 episodes. Thank you for hanging in there and thank you for listening. I also want to give a special shout out to a couple of the local ladies that were mentioned in the show this week. Both Angela Wilder and Jody Halverson are taking on the Tahoe 200 at the time of this recording. And Kelly and Phyllis are out crewing and pacing. So cool. Good luck to all of you. If you want to reach out to share your story with the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at Chasing Cutoffs. You can email me, chasingcutoffs at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Chasing Cutoffs Podcast. And if you're digging the show, that one and done special favor would be so appreciated. Head to wherever you listen to podcasts and do a quick rate and review. It helps other people find the show and it's really, really appreciated. 
And with that, wherever you are in your Chasing Cutoffs journey, from myself, producer Daisy, and all of us at Chasing Cutoffs, keep crushing the miles and let's flip the script on slow.